Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. My name is Matt, and joining me on the cast today are my co-hosts, Dan. Hey y'all. And the Dame, Tiffany B. Hey. Alright, thank you all for joining us again. We're going to give you our little social media pitch. Be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter by searching for the League of Nonsensical Gamers. Shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. Head on over to the BGG Guild, number 2077, and you can chat with us about our discussion topics and anything else on your mind. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to BoardGameLinks.com and give us some hearts. We'd love them. All right, so for today's show, we're going to chat about some Kickstarter spotlights that we've drummed up. We are going to try a new segment where Tiffany B is going to give us her hipster highlight. And then we are going to have a discussion topic today where we talk a little bit about randomness in board games. But as usual, before we do any of that, we need to talk about what we've been playing. Dan, how about you kick us off? Deuce! No, uh, Deus, or as the font looks, it looks like devs. I don't know. It's the pointy V. Yeah, the pointy V. I call it Deus. Uh, This is a new one that was just released from Asmodee, um, originally published by Pearl Games and released at Essen this year. Uh, We've talked about this before. I think it was on my top five for Essen. And we also kind of got into it when we had Matt and Ben on to talk about our anticipated games of 2015. Uh, This was one of my top five. It's a game of tableau building and... I don't know, a little bit of uh, board civvy building, kind of, in a way. Um, Players are dealt uh, a hand of cards, and you're going to be utilizing these cards to, again, build your tableau. Uh, Everyone has their own personalized tableau, and the tableau has five or six different slots in it, each one corresponding to a different building um, and a different god in this uh, fictional universe we're, we're in. And when you play a card into the tableau, you can then uh, build uh, that specific building on the map. Um, and there's different things that happen on the map. But ultimately, you're trying to combo, which is one of my favorite things to do. And this game's really cool with that because when you play a card into your tableau, um, not only are you going to activate the power on that card, but you're going to trigger all of the other cards played into that column of the tableau, uh, starting from the bottom all the way to the most recent card you played. So if you can, you know, chain things in a way that, you know, triggers multiple uh, effects, it's really cool. Um, There's also, if you can't, and this is where the heavy hand management part of this game comes in, if you can't play a card or you don't have the resources to spend to, you know, to play one, you can discard to the gods. So there's a god for each column of your tableau, and they all let you do things differently, like... um, gain some coins or gain new cards or gain resources. So um, it's a way to replenish your hand while still kind of mitigating the luck of the draw. So I I love this game. I can't say enough good things about it. Um, I started out playing it online. And then finally, when the physical copy arrived here in the U.S., I, uh, well, Tiff picked it up for me. So I was very thankful for that. And yeah, I love it. 
Please, Tiff, go. Well, I still haven't played my physical copy yet. I had to kind of cancel my game night this week, but I pretty much agree with everything that Dan just said. I'm excited to play it in real life. I think my group will have a good time with it because it's just that nice, it's not too long. It's about 60 minutes and that's what they're going for and they like card comboing and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's good. what do you think about it, Matt? I don't want to be the dissenter. I feel like I'm always the guy. You didn't like it. Uh, I played it twice, two four-player games. Um, I don't. I will not say that I do not like it. I will say that I'm underwhelmed by it. Um, so, in theory, I think that the card comboing is a great idea, and I really like the idea of having to discard to tribute to uh, discard a tribute to the gods to get the powers. I think that that's a really clever idea. I have just found in my two very limited plays that the game is prone to a lot of card draw randomness which we'll actually chat about later in the show and that it can become difficult to do what you want to do repeatedly um, I don't know what the card distribution is and I've, I've wondered that both games um, but the first game I played I could have handedly won except I played four turns in a row without being able to draw a blue card all I needed was one blue card um, and then the second game we played was kind of a mismatch of trying to get temple cards, but I didn't have any because Dan had six in his hand at all times. Um, and then just not getting the colors I wanted. So I don't know if that's me not playing the strategy well um, or just me blaming card draw. I'm not sure what it is. I definitely want to play it more and try it out. But I was excited to play it because you guys were loving it so much and it seemed something that I'd be like something that I'd be into. I almost bought it. I'm glad I didn't, though, because I found that I'm I'm not that jazzed about it at the moment. Did you find that your plays got better as you played it more? Well, I've only played it three times now. Um, I, I mean, I don't. I don't think I've noticed a huge difference. I figured out kind of some of the things that I'm trying to do a little bit better. Like, I think the first time I played, I didn't do any of the like sort of attacking stuff. That, yeah. that can happen on the board. I was avoiding that, and that was kind of a problem. But um, on the whole, I, I've i enjoyed it every time i played it, but you're not the first person that's been frustrated by card draws uh, that, that I've played it with. Uh, Chris Kopak and I played it online, and, and I think he was very feeling much the same way that you are. Yeah, I know that Dan said that the two-player was different. I mean, you can... I'd like to hear the differences between the two. Well, that's, I don't think it's different. I just think the board the way the board's laid out i don't know that it was more open or less congested or what it was but i liked it two player um four was good four went by quick though i didn't really have a chance to build up as much as i want but again i had some poor card draw but what i love about this game and it almost it kind of reminded me of bruges in a way and i don't like bruges for the specific reason that card draw in that game is, is brutal because if you can't get that color building you need to kind of trigger off your combos, you're in trouble. But what I like about Deus is it seems to give a bit more uh, in the way of mitigation because you've got the six different gods that you can at any time on your, you know, your turn could be to discard, activate their power, and then draw a completely new hand. So that for me uh, is a really cool mechanic that I think you know alleviates some of the card draw, and and I'm not saying that it's completely eliminated, but for uh, for me, I I think it it does a good job of it. Yeah, 
I know that this was one that Tom Bassel really liked because I watched his review, and that apparently this was one of the big, like, number ones out of Essen. So maybe there's just something I'm missing, and maybe I'll look into some of, like, the articles and see if people, you know, have some comments that might alleviate my pain. I, I'm still willing to play it because I like it, and I think it's interesting. It's quick, too, which yeah. I like. It's 60 minutes. I just, yeah. I was just surprised by how much the card draw was messing with me, but maybe that's a small sample size. Now, do you like Bruges? I haven't played Bruges that many times. I thought Bruges was fine. Did you um, get the similar kind of feel with the card draw, though? Yeah, I mean, the times that I played, it is contingent on um, how the dice roll and what cards come into your hand. I do like that those cards are much more versatile, though. I mean, you've got six different things you can do with a card in Bruges. So you've, I feel like there's a little bit more openness. These cards, either you do what you want with them or you discard them for the power. So it's a, it's a little bit more limited. This, I actually, now that I think about it, I don't know that I like the board play that much. I think I like the card play, even though the card draw kind of screws me, but the board play is important, and I don't find it that interesting. So I don't know. i got to play it more before we go off on a tangent about Deus. But yeah, play it more. We'll I, review this one. Yeah, I hope so. Hopefully I'll get to play it in cardboard form this week or so. Just a note on production, though. Asmodee dropped the ball on this one. They spelled mountain wrong. And bolded it on a number of cards. Oh, yeah, how all did the they cards spell that it? Off mountains, Mountain. without the first N, so Motan or whatever. But they also got the resource chits yeah. and the symbols mixed up. So the money is the color of the wood, and the woods a different. I don't know. It's very strange. Oh no! And it didn't. It's not that big a deal. Kelly B thought it was the worst thing in the world. She could not let it go. Yeah, she was being a bit dramatic with it. But, um, <laughs> but it is. It is a little upsetting that like a company that that's so practiced. And maybe it's because it's Pearl. I don't know. I don't know. What, I don't know who's doing the quality what hand control. Asmodee has in the the actual U.S. release. Yeah. But yeah. The translation of mountain was spelled incorrectly. It's a little which, silly. Which Smee I thought was going to flip the table because his biggest pet peeve is spell checking and grammar in rule books and cards which yeah. is fair i mean if you're going to professionally release a game especially from a company that big yeah you would think there would be some quality you know i'm an auditor so i i appreciate a quality check here and there well you'd think there'd be enough eyes on it that they would catch that wow. it's in bold too that's the funny thing like you know how the card on the cards like some of the triggering words like the either the land type or the action are in bold and this was one of them it's bold mountain like how did you miss that <laughs> yeah. let's move along though so tiff anything else you've been playing well i've been playing mangrovia which is a game that zock put out around Essen this year um it it's beautiful first off uh, if you look at the board and the cards the artwork is great uh, it's kind of abstract there's a whole lot of theme really pasted onto it when it comes down to it it's kind of a, a worker placement or really uh, action selection with area control mixed in basically you're you're trying to build huts on this grid and in these divine paths and the closer you are to the totem of each path and uh, the the majority of huts that you have affect how many points that you get and there are different areas in the board that give different points and you're using this archipelago region of the board is set up it's it's, it's a really interesting thing because what you're doing is you have these bowls and um in in the two-player game you get to place two which i liked better uh but 
if you're playing with more than two, you only place one and it selects two separate actions for you when you place it. So it's like a little archipelago thing and the boat goes around it. So there's space one, two, three, four, five on the one side and then on each other side of that five, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 have a different action on the other side. I don't know if this is making sense to anyone, but when you put your bowl down, you're selecting both sides and they happen in the order that the boat reaches them. So you kind of, it's, it's a weird kind of planning thing that you have to do in your brain. Like, okay, this is going to let me draw cards. And then when the boat goes around to the other side, if I take this one, I'll also get to put down a hut because of that. So I like the timing and planning out of that. Um, what you're doing is there's cards out on display. So there's valuables and there are four of those face up and then there's a draw deck and then there are landscape there's three of those face up and a draw deck and the different actions are taking face up and face down cards and then you pay um either valuables or amulets depending and and the type of landscape to place the hut and there's also these birds of paradise thing that determine which kinds of landscape you can place in at the time. It sounds like a whole bunch of rules. It's really not that complicated. Uh, in the game that we played, there was a, a brand new player who I would consider probably pretty casual. She's just getting into the world of gaming and she was able to handle it. But it is, it's, I would say that it's unintuitive because it's, there's, the theme is pasted on. Like it's just rules and <laughs> you have to learn them. But but I had fun with it. I liked it. It's a lot. It's math. Cool. Yeah. Dan Dan got this one right. Did you? Oh yeah, you did. Have you played it? <clears throat> I have not. No. It's on my stack, which is now at the ceiling. <laughs> so many so many things to play. Yeah. So is mine. So I mean, is this one that you see breaking out more often, or is this kind of like cool to have played and you'll just kind of let it sit? I think this is one that we'll play again. I mean, I think everybody and I don't think anybody was hating it by the end. No one really complained about the theme problem. I mean, it was nice to have something that has pretty colorful components and a beautiful map on the board. Um, yeah. And and I think my group is into kind of strategy and planning so that they kind of dug the whole math and timing part of it. So I think we'll play it again. I think this is one that I could potentially teach to some of my kids at Board Game Club. We are extending our amount of time starting yeah. starting next week. We're going to the hour and a half time because they want more. That opens a whole new range of options. Yes, it does. And I'm excited about it too because fillers, too many fillers. Nah, I mean, you could get two... Two nice little forty-five minute games in now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm if excited. They know how to play them. Well, we'll see. It's the teaching part that takes the time because yeah. their attention spans at the end of the school day are maybe not <laughs> good. Their attention spans are never good. Yes, true. Trust me. <laughs> so I'm gonna jump in here with a couple games that I've been playing and um, just two first impressions of two felds that I've gotten in in the last week. Um, Weird. So yesterday. What, Tiff? You're playing Felds? Yeah, can I not play Felds? You can play Felds. I just, you didn't like La Isla, so I just assumed that you're yeah. a Feld hater. These are two Felds that I actually like much better than my first play of La Isla. <sighs> okay. I'm sorry. Go on. But first impressions. So the one we played yesterday, uh, we played Notre Dame. So this is a action selection game through card drafting, which is pretty cool. And this is one of his earlier titles. Um, it's kind of bland and bleak looking. It's very brown and monotone. Um, and then the contrast to that is I got in a play of Aquasphere, which is his newest kind of heavier Euro, which is 
the exact opposite. It's very brightly colored, um, but it's also action selection and a little bit of area control. Um, and I, I liked both of these games for very different reasons. Um, Notre Dame was quick and easy to pick up with card drafting, which I really like, even though it's not a mechanic I'm particularly good at. Um, I got the swing of it pretty quick, and our game was really close. Actually, our game was really close. I just remembered Smee and I tied and went to the double tiebreaker to uh, to see who would win it. That was really an excellent like 45 minute. It hit the sweet spot for like a nice little Euro game with a minimum amount of randomness, which I'm just harping on that because that's our show for today. And then the opposite of that is Aquasphere, which unfortunately we had to pick up and learn in the moment because my buddy bought it and then handed me the rule book and said, you figure it out. Um, so this one didn't go over as well with everyone else, although um, after the game, there were some sour feelings at the end of the game because it's a bit heavy. There was a lot to kind of work through with the point salad nature of Aquasphere um, and just kind of, even though it's simplistic in theory, executing everything is a little bit tougher, um, especially in contrast to something like Notre Dame. But after everyone played, even though we left kind of like meh and some people were kind of cranky about the game, everyone wanted to play it again. So we, we were texting each other like, yeah, I think we're ready to try Aquasphere again. Because it really does come down to like you've got two options on your turn. You can either program a little robot or you can send your robot out to select an action. And once you realize that, it takes a little while to realize how to how to get that done. But it really is that simple. So I'm excited for both of these games. I don't own either of them, but they're both readily available in the playgroup. So I'm looking forward to getting in a few more plays of it. Aquasphere is tempting. I don't think I'll find Notre Dame because that's out of print, isn't it? Dan nodded for all you listeners at home. Um... <laughs> But uh, Aquasphere, Aquasphere is tempting. They're really trying to... Does anyone know why they're trying to push Aquasphere so heavy? Um, Facebook, Twitter, TMG's like, come buy Aquasphere for $40 on Amazon. We're selling it for $40 on Amazon. Come buy it. I don't know. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. You're the, you're the Feld lovers here. I know Dan's coming <laughs> around to it. So I don't know if you guys had any opinions on these games you wanted to share. I talked about Notre Dame in a previous episode. I really like that one. Like you said... 45 minutes, medium weight, really just hits a sweet spot. It's it's quick, it's easy to understand, and yeah, it offers enough decent decisions. I'll put that on my list of things that both of you like that I need to check out. Um, I haven't played that one, and I have Aquasphere, but it... The only time I'm going to get that played is like at my once a month Panericon thing, because it's pretty heavy, so... All right, so another game that I got to play uh, yesterday, actually, was a game I'm a little bit lukewarm on, actually. I didn't... It was a resounding meh after one play, and this is Artificium. This is a recent release from... In the U.S., I think Asmodee put it out. And in Artificium, what you're trying to do... This is another kind of card comboing game, but it's, it's very quick. It's... It's got this it's got a similar pace to I'd say like Splendor. So it's it's brisk, but it gives, you know, some interesting decisions at some points. Other times it didn't, but I'll get into that in a minute. And it was easy to pick up. So in Artificium, what you're trying to do is you're trying to acquire the most uh, victory points. Um, and you do this by collecting resources from these cards. Each player is dealt. There's four rounds, each player is dealt. Uh, I think it's five cards each round. Um, first phase is you go through and there's a market of six cards 
and you can, I guess, mitigate your card draw by being able to switch cards in and out of the marketplace um, to better fit the strategy you're trying to go for. Strategy is a loose word because it's, it's really more tactical. Um, so after that, then each player takes turns uh, playing a card. Everyone simultaneously reveals a card, and then in turn order, you reveal the action you're taking, and then take that action. So there's a couple things you can do. You can collect resources um, by building these buildings. Uh, there's no theme in this game. I'm just going to say that right now. So when I say build buildings, you're playing a card, gaining resources, and collecting a point, or two, or three, or five. Then there's also these cards that allow you to convert resources. So it's kind of hard to explain without having a visual, but in Artificium, there's a your little player board is uh, an escalating resource tree. So there's wood and grain at the bottom. Those can be then converted into the tier two resources, which then can be converted into tier three resources, ultimately into tier four resources, which are like magic and potions and stuff like that. So you're trying to work your resources up this board through your card play. And then um, there's these four different actions that are throw a little bit of take that in there. I say take that loosely, but you could steal a card from another player or you could take a card back into your hand to play it again. So there's a couple of different things, but ultimately what it came down to is whatever you were dealt, you basically had to adapt on the fly and do, do what you could best with what you were given. And again, Harping on our randomness discussion, this game was a little bit too random for me. I've spent the last round, I spent the first three rounds building up my resource tree. I had it in great position. And then the last round, I was dealt five completely useless cards and I had to somehow finagle them into scoring a couple of points. So for me, it just, it fell really flat. Yeah, I mean, in essence, I thought it was going to be like... I, well, we all thought it was going to be like quintessential like engine building, but it didn't work out that way because you, your engine, like you, you said yesterday, kind of resets every turn. So there's no real progression. You get to store your resources from turn to turn, but you just don't get a card play and things. You just don't get to build up enough. It's more like you've got to make the best of your five cards for that turn and see how you do. Uh, it was okay. If you treat it like a filler, maybe. It might be fun to kind of like try to master and get better at, but yeah, it was kind of, I'm glad I didn't buy it because I was looking at it on the shelf. and Yeah, same here. Because it's been, a couple of people have rated it highly that I trust, but. Well, I was going to say for filler, this, I mean, I'm looking at it on Board Game Geek and it says it can take up to 50 minutes. How long did your play go? I'd say we were over in like 30 with four players. Okay. It was quick. All um, right. It's only four rounds. Again, five cards per round with minimum downtime. Yeah, because I mean, it's, it's simultaneous, simultaneous play and then you execute in turn order because of some of the card actions but yeah it just i don't know and i can't this, see this taking an hour i don't know who's playing this for an hour okay <laughs> i don't either and here's what i'll say i'd rather play splendor wow those are sh bold bold statement that's because splendor's a good game so yeah splendor mechanically i like is still splendor. A good game. splendor's fun yeah i'd play splendor over this Anywho, they're not really comparable, but... All right, well, does anybody else have anything that they've been playing that's, that they really want to jump out with? No. Um, then we are going to go ahead and take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some Kickstarter projects that we drummed up.
All right, everyone, welcome back from the break. It is time to get into some Kickstarter spotlights. First up, we have a very popular game from Cryptozoic Entertainment. It is Ghostbusters the Board Game, which is currently sitting at almost $500,000 and will be ending on March 12th. So you got some time in case you're interested in this, and the reason that you might be interested in this would probably be nostalgia and love of miniatures because that seems to be what this project is chock full of. How's everyone feeling about Ghostbusters? Mm. Mm. That seems to explain the feeling. I love Ghostbusters as a theme, as a movie, as a comic, as, you know, everything. I really like it. But I think this was, I don't know, I think this was rushed out. I think this was, it was thrown out there to piggyback off the nostalgia that Conan just brought with their 16,000 backers, $3.5 million Kickstarter. This one is really going to tug on the heartstrings of a lot of people, and I think they knew that. But there's there is literally zero gameplay, zero review, zero anything of substance to for me to base my pledge on. Well, except for some pictures of the minis. If you scroll all the way to the bottom, Dan, right about right above the banner that says "Why Kickstarter," there is a non-linkable link that you can look at a rules primer. Yeah. So the, what more yeah. do you need? Yeah, the rules primer for a scenario is in a bitly link, and it's not even linkable. It's at the bottom right above the Y Kickstarter yeah. banner. It's just ridiculous. I think that the look and feel of the game seems cool. I dig that they went with like the comic book style um, artwork instead of anything more realistic. I think that the miniatures look cool, although they're artist rendering or they're uh, 3D renderings, so they're not physical minis, so they will look similar, but not yeah. exactly that shiny. Um, kinda, it could be crap plastic and all kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, and well, that's what concerned me most is I clicked on it and it was cryptozoic. <laughs> And I, I know that that's mean, and I know that they were very kind to save the Doom that came to Atlantic City, um, but that holds no weight in me spending the money to get this game, especially because it's expensive. Yes. It's, what is it, 80 bucks? $80. Yeah. Just for the base game. Yeah, and if you want the Mass Hysteria pledge, which comes with sweet glow-in-the-dark dice and all kinds of other stuff. But how many times are you going to play this game in the dark? Well, if I do that I, every time. I was going to say, but I, the novelty of glow-in-the-dark dice is just, it's lost on me. Because when are you going to play in such a setting that, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the dice will glow, but then you won't be able to see the minis or the board or anything else. This is just stuff. It's just for, it's just yeah. stuff grab. Do you just turn off the lights when people do a dice roll? Like, yes. <laughs> you put you put your light on the clapper for this game. And yes. You just, you just clap before every dice roll. Yeah. I wonder if that's in the rule book. Oh, wait. It's a variant. <laughs> this is a manifestation of what people are worried about in Kickstarter. They're worried about projects like this. And I don't mean to bash on like a good uh, big company. I shouldn't say good big company. But this, there's no substance here in this project. And that upsets me. Yeah, it's just a couple of graphics. Yeah. Well, and it looks a lot like uh, Zombie Side to me. Yep. And I'm I'm worried that it's just like a zombie side clone with some Ghostbusters theme pasted on it, and it really is killing me inside because I love the Ghostbusters. It might be my all-time favorite movie, and I want a plastic Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I do, 
but I don't think I'm going to back this project because I have no information about this gameplay. There are double-sided board game tiles, just like Zombicide. There are dice, Zombicide. There are character sheets, look like Zombicide. Everything looks Zombicide to me, and I have Zombicide. I think it's it's just, I don't know. And if you want a giant plastic Stay puff Marshmallow Man, get the Funko Pop one. It's awesome, and it's giant, and you can get him in the toasted version where he's angry. That is my advice if you want something Ghostbusters-related. I might just do that. This just has worrisome all over it for me. I, I, I'll wait to see when it comes out in retail. Yeah. So I got a little cranky there. Does anybody have anything that they would like to say that I bulled over as I ranted about Ghostbusters? I missed your rant. Well, that was, that was my mini. I don't rant much here. So that was me being upset. Taking on the man. Rawr. Yeah. Grr. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move on. I don't have anything angry. else to say. Let's go ahead and move on to something that um, we can support because friends of the show, Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback, have their game Floating Market up on Kickstarter right now. Um, It has funded with $26,000 of a $15,000 goal at this time of this recording. It's going to end on March 11th, and if you are into fruit salad, then this just might be the game for you. We can chat about it a little bit, but if you really want to hear more in depth, go back to episode 15 where we have Matt and Ben on the show, and we chat a lot about Floating Market and kind of the design decisions behind it and things like that. Um, it's a really good interview. But the project itself, 29 bucks, gets you a very brown-looking game with fruit salad as a primary means. Yeah. They, they've taken, not them specifically, more Eagle and Griffin, but they've taken some flack for uh, shipping and handling. Because even though it's advertised at $29... It's really thirty nine when you factor in for U.S. Uh, buyers. It's ten dollars shipping and handling added to that, and I think for European, it's almost double. I think it's the same cost as the actual game to get it shipped over there. So there's been a little bit of a you know a backlash about that, but Eagle and Griffin, Matt, Ben, all those guys, they've all been real responsive, kind of outlining specifically their costs and things like that to kind of at least. If not ease the pain of you know some backers, at least be clear and upfront with you know what they're doing here. And yeah. we also have a review or preview on nonsensicalgamers.com if you want to check it out. Yeah, definitely go over there and take a look at it if you want to know more. Um, essentially, it's a worker placement game with some crazy dice speculation and polyhedral dice. Um, there's some cool stuff that come in the game. Um, even though you do have to pay that $10 shipping for U.S., it's still pretty cheap um, of a product. And, I mean, Matt and Ben are great dudes, so supporting them, you're supporting good people, which is something that um, kind of Kickstarter, in my mind, is is a little bit about, is supporting good people. Yeah, it turned out beautifully, I think. So if you're looking for a game that has polyhedral dice, go for it. All right, so moving right along, we have another project, and this is the Meeple Source premium resources. Well, I was just checking this out, uh, just glancing through Kickstarter, and it's basically you can get custom meeples for games like Pandemic. In fact, there are a lot of Pandemic meeples. So you can get them for every version of Pandemic that you have, and they're I mean, they're meeples that are painted to look like those specific characters. So uh, they have uh, also the, the germs. <laughs> as well for Pandemic. So this is going to appeal to Pandemic uh, fans. They also have 
trains for ticket to ride if you want some wooden trains instead of your plastic trains they've that's silly i think so i mean if i'm gonna if i'm gonna upgrade my trains i'm just gonna for that price i'm just gonna buy the uh 10th anniversary or the whatever anniversary right well i could i i can attest that those sculpts are cool because i do own it but had this happened prior to that i would want wooden trains i like the idea of the wooden Euroiness. Yeah, but it's eighty-four dollars. Okay, I wouldn't have bought it, Dan. I'm just <laughs> saying that some know, people saying, might like, enjoy the feel of wooden trains as opposed to plastic. Yeah, ones. I guess I would just prefer to upgrade my entire yeah. game for um, that price. But what they do have is they have Lords of Waterdeep again. I was going to talk about that, but you just go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah. I can't. I'm no, they look great. I mean, they they have like painted miniatures for each one so like the red sashes dude has like a sweet beard ponytail thing going on like a beard tail i don't know what do you call that he looks like kopak <laughs> yes if if my friend chris kopak tied his beard into a ponytail it might look a little bit like him and so yeah they have their different costumes and yeah it looks way fancier or you can just get the like little mini meeples to replace your cubes but do they, um, oh, and stuff for Imperial Settlers that are themed yeah. appropriately. I'm kind of liking those. And Power Grid. Yeah, they look pretty cool. Are are these painted or are they stick? I stickers? think they're painted. Did I read it wrong? No, I'm just confirming no. with you. I must have missed it. I think they're painted. Don't quote me on it, people. Yeah. There's also stuff for Power Grid if you're into that. I've never played it, but, and, and some other games, but yeah, it looks pretty neat if you like upgrading your bits. I've kind of fallen out of that recently because I just buy more games instead of upgrading current ones, but yeah, they look nice. There's some cool ones, though. I thought about getting the um, Caverna thing for Dan, and I've looked at the Zulkin upgrade kit before, too, because they have the corn. So Ugh. we've got all kinds of games on here, so definitely something to look at. They they're, they are pricey, though. you got to really love a game to be dropping this kind of money on making it shiny. Yeah. But it's worth it. Yeah. I really like the Dominant Species ones. Have you played Dominant Species? They give it. They give it a lot. No, it's very high on my list Ugh. to play. I really want to try it, but they really give it a little more flavor than a bunch of cones. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think this would be perfect if there's like a game that you play all the time. Like, if I had seen this like four or five years ago, I totally would have bought all of this Pandemic stuff because we were playing Pandemic nonstop, and I was playing it solo nonstop. So. This would have, yeah, I'm weird. Don't look at me like that, Matt. Definitely yeah, weird. so nerd, <laughs> you you know it. I love the I love the germs though. They're pretty cool. They are cool. Um, Tiff, did you mention the end date? And the um, money? I didn't, but it's funded. They they're just a little bit over their funding goal, but they still have twenty. Well, as of right now, twenty seven days to go. They'll be done on March fourteenth, so you still have a, a little bit of time to get on there if you want to upgrade your game. All right, and the last project we have is called How to Serve Man, and this is by Gateway Games. It's sitting just under its funding goal, so by the time you guys hear this, it may actually be funded. Um, it will be ending on March tenth. So this is another game that I don't know too much about, although I've seen a little bit of the art is mostly what I'm seeing around is these crazy monsters eating humans. Yeah, yeah, that's what they're doing. I, I just, this caught my eye because I, when I glanced past it, I thought it said how to serve a man. <laughs> and I was like, what? 
So, ah, the game. Yeah. Ah, the board game of Gamergate. <laughs> right. So I decided to check it out, and then I realized that it has this really super quirky theme of you are alien chefs that are are competing in an arena, like, you know, Iron Chef style, but you're serving human, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it's worker placement is how they describe it. And although the art probably isn't to my liking, um, it seems interesting. I'm going to keep an eye on this one, I think. There are recipes and there are different judges and yeah. So it looks interesting enough to check out. Yeah, and it's sitting at 39 bucks, which is going to retail for 60 So you're getting a discount and that includes shipping and stretch goals. So the art's cool. I like the art. The character. Okay, I shouldn't say the art. The art looks good. I worry about the graphic design. Yeah. The, the player cards are a bit jumbled. Yeah, the art is cool. Graphic design, maybe not up my alley, but I don't know. I, I, I'm going to keep an eye on it. I like quirky themes, and this is just, you're serving people, people. Can I have one of your chef tokens, your chef meeples? No. Darn. <laughs> they look so cool. Yeah. I puffy hats on. Yeah, chef meeples. What else we got here? The first player token is a knife, so. Functional. Yeah, very functional, especially if I was playing with you guys, just... Ooh, constantly, aggressive. constantly picking on me any game we play. I would just like never, to never, never. Mm-hmm. All right, so that is how to serve man. Like I said, March tenth. If you're interested, thirty nine dollars, and that is all of the Kickstarter spotlight that we have for today. So we're gonna go ahead and take a break, and then transition into Tiff and her hipster highlight. Yep. All right, everyone, welcome back from the break, and it is time to try out our new segment. Tiff, our resident hipster gamer, is going to do a hipster highlight for us where she tells us about a game that you probably don't know about and probably have to pay a foreign currency to, to buy. <laughs> okay, well, let me really quickly just de define what I think of as a hipster game, and really that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but... Um, this is any game that I think is kind of under the radar or maybe not as mainstream. Yes, some of them are going to be imports. Maybe some of them will be out of print, but uh, this just is a game probably that not everybody is playing that I feel like needs some attention. So that's what I mean by hipster highlight. This is not about pretension. This is not about having games that nobody else has. This is about... It's a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Well, then cancel that. Tiff, please take <laughs> us through... Your game. <laughs> as long as she said it, we didn't. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I appreciate you trying to think the best of me. But yeah, it's a little bit. Never again. <laughs> so the game I want to talk about today is Rolling Japan, which is by Hisashi Hayashi and from Japan Brand. Um, this is a game that came out at Essen, kind of a limited release. Uh, I grabbed it up from Fun Again and was able to get it that way, but... It's a really simple kind of filler game. It starts, you start out with um, a score sheet. There's a tab tablet of score sheets and everybody gets this blocky map of Japan that has the prefixtures laid out in six different colors. Uh, there are also seven dice. So six of them are the colors of the prefixtures. And then uh, the seventh one is a purple joker die. Over eight rounds, the players are gonna pull two dice from the bag, roll them, and then you are writing the number of the die face that, that you rolled in the corresponding prefecture. 
you you only write the number you can only write the number next to a number that is either the same or one more than the number adjacent so if i have a four in my yellow i can only write another four or a five next to it so it's kind of a spatial element thing that you're trying to do and if you can't write a number of that color in in any space if there's no legal play then you write an x now throughout the eight rounds you get three color changes so you can change the color of the die and put it someplace else so that kind of helps and then at the end of the game the person with the least x's in their map wins so um the interesting thing about this is it has an unlimited player count it says one to eight and in parentheses, also 99. <laughs> so <laughs> the thing is, it's a multiplayer solitaire thing. So you're all doing the same thing at the same time. It's happening si simultaneously. So the player count doesn't affect the amount of time that you're doing. You can play this solo because um, you're just rolling dice and writing numbers into the score sheet. And um, so really any amount of players can will do for this one. It reminds me a lot of Quicks in that the components are really similar. That There's dice and colors, there's score sheets, and you're also trying to plan out where to put your numbers slash in Quicks, which would be X's, to optimize your score. And the strategy is in not locking yourself out of something that's going to benefit you later. And uh, it's kind of puzzly, and I played it with grown-ups i've played it with my middle school group and it's gone over pretty well as a filler in both of those groups i think it's pretty easy to teach you can teach it to anyone in just like a couple of seconds whereas when i explain quicks to people it, it takes me a little bit longer than that so but it might be a little bit thinkier than quicks but anyway it's a good one rolling japan by hizashi hayashi very cool so that's all we're really looking to do with this segment is just highlight an awesome little game that you may or may not know about and then you may have to hunt around to get but they just got these back in stock up on board game bliss perfect our favorite canadian retailer is it better than quicks be be blunt i like it better than quicks i think the spatial element gives you some there's a it's just a different kind of strategy because you're looking at that map and, you, and you're saying okay well i have a four here and if i put a six down here there's no way i'm going to be able to fill in all those blocks in between so you're having to decide am i going to lock myself out of this area or is that going to screw me over later so i like it better than quicks and you can get better maps, um, they're not better maps, but more maps. I think that's probably the only downfall of it is that it might get a little samey after a while, but on Board Game Geek, there are people making maps for it now, so. And they're kind of fun. I played one of them the other day, solo. And this is fun to play solo. I wish I had time like that to make Japanese maps for board games. <laughs> I wish I had time to make board games. Well, all right, maybe well, you should start with Japanese map. Well, now that we're all sad about how Aww. we don't do no what more we hipster highlight, too. everybody's sad now. All right, so that was the end of Tiff's sad corner. Uh, we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we are gonna get into our discussion of randomness in board games. Welcome back, everyone. We are going to get into our discussion topic for episode 17, and that is talking a little bit about randomness in board games. So I think the most logical place to start is just to, we'll go round, round the table and just talk a little bit about how we define randomness in board games, what we're thinking about, what we're talking about when we talk about randomness. So 
in my mind, it's the use of an element, whether it be cards or dice or a spinner or anything like that, to introduce imperfect information into a game. Um, so anything that makes what's available to you or the outcome of a game more opaque and kind of harder to determine um, for the time being. So that's kind of so that's kind of what I'm thinking. How about you, Dan? I'm going to use the Urban Dictionary definition, which is any old bunch of crap that is thrown in together. I like it. <laughs> Tiff, how do you define randomness? <laughs> no, I think I think both of those two things say it perfectly. It's kind of the, it's the unknown factor that you're going to have to react to in terms of a game. Ah, all right. A lack of predictability, lack of pattern. A lot of times in board games, it's used to simulate random events whether it be in history or well, let's actually along those lines. get right into that so now with an idea of kind of what in the world we're talking about let's talk about the purpose of randomness like why do we what do we see the purpose of randomness in board games um, and kind of its role why do people use it so dan you were just talking about kind of simulation so maybe you can go on that a little bit um well i'll, I'll start actually at the outset of the game i think a lot of times and this is probably maybe a little bit more recent um, that you see randomness in game setup and this is used to in my opinion prolong the replayability of games as well as make it so that you're not kind of off the block in the same kind of manner each game it kind of gives you a I don't know a tactical outlay right at the start that you can start building your strategy upon so that's that's one thing I've seen Tiff, any other reasons why you see board games using randomness? Well, I think it's it definitely has to do with whether or not the design is going to encourage tactical or strategic play. Um, so if you want your players planning long term, they might need more perfect information. Whereas if you want players constantly reacting and changing their strategy throughout a game, um, you're going to have more randomness. So they have to react to something that, that they don't know about. So, yeah, when we were planning the the term like forcing improvisation was thrown around. I don't remember who said it, but I liked how that was described. That was me. Uh, it was elegant. It was beautiful. It was articulate. Yes, I appreciate <laughs> having Dan here by my side because I just I wouldn't know what to say otherwise. Um, wow, Richard, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> Too far. Um. So yeah, I I think. It all feeds into kind of what style of game, or at least what feelings and uh, thought patterns, what you're trying to elicit from your players at certain stages of a game. So there is a way to combine randomness and more perfect information within the same game. It's really about what the designer wants to do with a certain element of their game, whether they want them, okay, we want this to be a little bit more reactive. We want players to roll a die or draw out of a bag where, you know, certain things we don't, we don't want players to have to worry about it or because that either changes the feeling of the game or the difficulty of the game. Um, so that's what I'm seeing in terms of the use of randomness or the purpose of randomness in games. Um, I know Dan wanted to use the word obfuscate um, in the idea that it's, it's a way to hide things, right? It's a way to make it so that your game is not openly solvable it's not it's not just a problem when you when you look at the board or when you look at the cards 
Yeah, no, it encourages adaptability. Um, and yes, I did want to use the word obfuscate. Obfuscate. How do you, there you go. Obfuscate? You got it the second time. Yeah. All right. And I also used another big word phrase called the planning horizon. So piggybacking off what you said is it, it just throws that little wrench in your plan. Some games, it's a bigger wrench, and those games piss me off. But <laughs> um, we'll talk about that in a minute. So I think another way, and we kind of touched on it, um, but just looking more at creating an atmosphere, like a social atmosphere, I think, that randomness, because um, I, I almost fold like deception into that a little bit. Maybe that's not correct is that appropriate to do so like hidden information is not inherent to randomness but randomness is partially hidden information so i don't know if i want to fold those two together i don't know if deception is the right i mean let's look at mechanics that are predominantly considered random you got dice rolling is probably your biggest one correct yeah card draw um what else do we have there's you know bag drawing Yeah. yeah token drawing so I don't, I don't know that there's anything deceptive about those. I think deception can be worked into specific mm-hmm. game types. I think you're getting more into a type of game that uses randomness as opposed to the mechanic okay. of randomness. So, I don't know. It, it just depends on where we want to take this conversation. Yeah. So, I was just trying to iron out my thought because I'm thinking about this creating an atmosphere thing. I just think that for some games, and this might lead us into our next point, which is kind of our perceptions of randomness, but for some games, the use of randomness can create an environment for the players. Um, But that may hinge more on their perception than the mechanic itself, but I'm not sure. Well, I think in any game, and we can talk about why we dislike or like randomness in our games, but I think in any game, the feeling is important. And a lot of times a game may or may not be random, you know, depending on, you know, how many times you've played it, strategies involved, things like that. But if it gives you that feeling, if you have maybe one bad experience with a roll of a die, a card draw or something, a lot of people I think are very quick to go, oh, randomness in this game. It's horrible. And I think that's something that, you know, we as reviewers need to kind of step back and say, all right, was that more circumstantial? Was that something inherent in the design? And just kind of analyze it from that standpoint because I think feel is is huge because even though it may not be an absolutely true, you know, random decision, random anything, um, that feeling and that first impression people get from games, it, it, it weighs heavily on them. Yeah, well, I would say, I mean, there are certain games where I could tell my group was thinking, okay, this is very random, like take Alien Frontiers, for example. Um, I think they like strategic things a little bit more and they see dice and they see space and they think random. Um, There are ways to mitigate those random dice rolls in the game. And and to me, that makes the game way less random than it might appear in first glance. So as far as feel versus perception and all that thing, all that goes into it, um, you do have to be careful determining, is this truly random? Are there ways to go about, uh, you know, getting around that randomness in a game? Well, yeah. And so I think that that kind of takes us into perception. So I think that um, piggybacking off that point, Tiff, when we look at things like dice and cards and, we, and drawing out of a bag, you know, the feeling that we get of like, these are random elements. I think first and foremost, a lot of people see this in in a negative way. Is that fair to say that some people just see? Yes. I shouldn't say like some people, but that on the whole, it seems like, oh, this game has too much randomness. 
is often a critique of games, and I guess that's because it interferes with this balance of skill and chance. Right. Is that... Well, people like to feel like they have control over their destiny and, get like, you know, the outcome of a game, and if there's too much randomness and they don't feel like they have any input, um, why should they even play it? If a game plays itself, if it's completely on rails... So if you put too much randomness, if a designer puts too much randomness in a game, then the players are going to feel out of control and kind of like, well, this is pointless. This is hopeless. Why should I do this? Right? Yeah. And that kind of gets into almost categorizations of games that have been, you know, given out lately. So you got your Ameritrash where randomness is, you know, heavy. It oftentimes could, you know, drastically affect the game or even the end of the game in some instances. And then you've got your Euro and your hybrid. So we're getting into like classification, I think, a little bit here. But I, I agree with what Tiff said. I think for me, it's it's how does the randomness um, trigger decisions? How does it affect gameplay? And in what way is the designer intending to use it? Mm-hmm. So looking at those kind of categorizations, this is something that's always interested me is that, you know, in theory, the categorizations of a game as a Meritrash or Euro or hybrid or whatever you want to call it, I mean, these are just labels that have grown over time. And now there's a connotation that, yes, an Ameritrash game or an American-style game is one that introduces a lot of luck and randomness through card play, dice play, and, and things like that. Whereas a Euro-style game is more... It seems to be the trend, at least, that it's considered less random, more long-term strategic planning and things like that. And I've just... It worries me that we get kind of locked into these um, these ways of thinking, um, these kind of, like, categorizations, these stratifications, because, I mean, I think that there's randomness everywhere. And to look at a game that's predominantly Euro that has card play, like... Agricola or something like that. Those opening buildings, that's card draw, that's randomness, even though there's there you can do it like a draft. Like that's a way to mitigate randomness. So the randomness is there in this Euro game. And I mean there's other examples of that. So I just I'm just kind of piecing through my thoughts on this idea of categorization in games by randomness. It almost seems that that's the tool that we often categorize a game as being this or that. Yeah, I think that's the tool, but I I think to a certain extent that comes down to theme too. You know, space theme versus farming theme, you categorize one as Ameritrash and one as Euro typically, whether there is randomness or not. So uh, those categorizations, yes, have randomness in them, you know, or whether or not a game has randomness in it is part of that, but it also has to do with theme. So sticking with kind of preconceptions, we've touched on theme, categorization. Um, For me, a lot of times, my preconception, um, I look at the components, like we said, again, if there's dice in a game, my mind automatically, whether right or wrong, says, oh, this is going to have some kind of random element in it. Um, which I then research and figure out whether or not it can be mitigated, etc. But also length of the game. So is this a 20-minute filler? Do I then kind of sit back, turn my brain off a little bit, and just enjoy the experience and the feel that the randomness gives me? Um, so I, I don't know. It's a couple of things for me are, are preconceptions, and it takes a little bit of research, a little bit, you know, even just reading the rules sometimes kind of goes, oh, all right, I see what they're doing here. I can get along with that. Yeah, so what does it take to kind of buck that idea, though? And and part of this conversation was uh, 
spawned from our discussion of Roll for the Galaxy last episode. So to go back to that idea, Roll for the Galaxy is a 45-minute to an hour um, dice game with heavy mitigation and kind of, I guess it's it's so quick that it's more like tactical play, but there is some long-term strategy there. And I, I know that one of the things that bothered you was that it's a dice game. And you're like, this is a dice game and I can't get beyond that. Even though it's got some heavy mitigation where it almost doesn't feel like a dice game if you look at it with a, with a wider lens. So like, what does it take for you to break through that idea that even though Roll for the Galaxy is a dice game, that actually maybe I shouldn't be categorizing it as like a random roll fest? I don't want to speak for Dan, but I can say that Roll for the Galaxy does have a fair amount of randomness in it because yes there are tiles developments that you can get that will mitigate your dice rolls but if you don't get those tiles then you can't mitigate and i guess you have to assign enough die to explore to get those tiles if that's what you're looking for but i can see where the randomness might bother someone because there's there are two elements of randomness your dice rolling and your tile drawing yeah so after we reviewed that um I kind of took a step back and tried to kind of define because I wasn't necessarily happy with my, um, again, I only played Roll for the Galaxy once, so everything I said was off of just that first impression, but the way I kind of define my liking of randomness in a game is that the randomness happens before the decision-making point for me because that then allows me to react accordingly. Um, I prefer to base my decisions and my tactical play um, as a result of, for instance, a die roll, as opposed to rolling something and then seeing if it succeeds, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. A good example of this um, that I can think off the top of my head is Dead of Winter. So for me, Dead of Winter, you're rolling dice, and then depending on the the dice you roll, you can assign them to specific actions or characters that may need, you know, a five or greater or something to trigger this action. That's great. I love that. You know, I roll that and then based off of that, I can make my decisions. What I didn't like was then following that decision that I took the time to think out, I roll this D20 and then a tooth comes up and I die. That just irritated me beyond belief. And it was just, it was a mix that I just did not like. So again, for me, I I really prefer the randomness to happen before a decisioning point as opposed to determining whether my decision is correct or not. So how does that go for something like, I was thinking about La Isla, because there's randomness in that, and that you you get this hand of cards, and then you have to choose where they go. But sometimes placing your explorers is heavily influenced by what the random factor of your opponents. And that happens after you've made your decisions to do whatever you want to do. How do you feel about that? Well, opponents as a factor, I think that's a whole... We can save that for. I have that on my list. People are the random factor, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's good. I think that's that's probably the one element of randomness I really, really, really like because you know you like being able to anticipate. It's the human and social element. That's what makes board games board games. You know, that's why I don't solo game. That's why I don't like to really play online unless it's via Skype. I like the social. I like the human element that board games bring. So we can talk about that a little bit more. Well, so within that, I mean, how do you feel about, and this is just hypothetical, like how do you feel about a player who is not playing optimally or some, like when the randomness of the player does not fit kind of your heuristic of how game, like that you should be applying. So players just doing 
the wild card thing. Like that can be frustrating. And yet that's the ultimate randomness. You know, that's the human element that we are trying to overcome to win games and compete. But is there like a social contract with like, you should be playing a certain way and not be totally random? Like, should there be predictability in your in your opponents to some extent? I hate to be that guy, but yes, there should be a social contract that you're not going to play suboptimally. Like, I don't know. And, and maybe that's just the planner in me needing to have that and and that's too much randomness to have that wild card player because I've had that in games and when it happens I am just like holding back all of my emotions of frustration and anger at that person who is just doing things to do things like that drives me crazy because you're planning at least when I plan I'm planning that everyone around the table is going to play to the best of their ability to win and if they're not doing that it really messes with me but what for the, for that, I guess, and this is maybe this is why I don't game sim so much with random people. Not that I don't like random people and I don't like socializing and meeting new people, but um, you know, for instance, our Friday night game nights, um, Kelly is now involved, and I know that Kelly's going to be involved. So I know that we all can tailor kind of what we offer to play based on Kelly's likes and dislikes. Uh, as well as what Matt likes and dislikes and what I like and dislike. And we can kind of tailor our choices or our options so that we pick a game where everyone will feel that they can play it to the best of their ability, will understand it, and will enjoy it. So I think, I, I don't know, I think you need to, to take that into account too. Yeah, I... I agree with that, but I, I think I, what I'm talking about is a player that you sit down with and deliberately chooses to go oh, a weird Then you don't path. play with them anymore. <laughs> I've, I'm just saying I've had that, and that's a sort of... Kick them of... in the nuts under the table. <laughs> or if, it, if it's a lady, then hopefully you, you can... don't kick her in the nuts. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's not talk about that. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's so. what I took from that's what I took from what Matt said because like to go back to Dead of Winter we went and we had I had a game of it and they were players that I didn't know very well but one of the guys did something that made him look extremely suspicious and we ended up like exiling him or whatever that's called in Dead of Winter and at the end of the game we're like well why did you like you weren't the traitor dude why did you do that and he's like just cuz and it, it messed up the flow of our game. <laughs> well, and I think that that's, it's an interesting thing for us because we are, I think it's safe to say that we are competitive game players, that we play to win, and that in general we're always looking for the optimal strategy because we're trying to beat our opponents. I mean, some games are more competitive than others and some we, we approach differently. But in general, I think that when we all sit down at the table, we have, an, we have that social contract that we are going to compete. We are going to play... Um, and usually if anything bucks that, we'll say, like, I'm just going to try something weird today. But I think that, you know, looking at randomness, when you do factor in different skill levels, like, how do you overcome some players just not being able to play optimally yet because they ha they don't have enough experience or they don't quite grasp it or things like that? See, that I can um, tolerate. I mean, I play with teenagers. <laughs> well, yeah, so who's to say that someone... And those games look very different because of that. It's the, I think the human element is is probably the most interesting random piece, but it's probably also the hardest to jump into without getting lost down a rabbit hole. Okay. And I think that maybe we're falling down that a little bit. I mean, does anybody have any, any kind of big thoughts they wanted to go with the human element of randomness? Because I think when we started here, we're, we're, we're looking at the game itself. 
Right. Yeah. So I'm no. just putting some parameters here. No, we we can rein it back in. Go ahead, Dan. No, I was just going to say one last point, and this ties into preconception, <laughs> is that, you know, I see certain games when I see come on the, the, the table, I do kind of switch off, and the competitiveness in me scales back a bit. I'm not so much worried about winning or losing. I'm some. I'm looking forward to the experience. A recent one was, you know, XCOM, for instance. That game's brutal, but I was there to just have fun and just enjoy the experience. Well, that's not an inherently competitive game, though. That's a cooperative game. So yeah. All right. So a bad example. So let's take, you know, Turn the Tide or something like that. You know, a filler that we all love to sit down and play. That's mm-hmm. something that if I lose that game. I don't care because I had a great time playing it. We all laughed. We all had fun. And it was just one of those things. So I do have that kind of preconception. Mm-hmm. And I think that all kind of it all kind of builds together yeah. into one happy random So Tiff, I know you have something that you want to... Well, I was going to say, it, when you're talking about Turn the Tide, is that because the length of that game is you know a little bit shorter so you can tolerate yeah, it? And that, and, and that all kind of ties to what I said preconception-wise. Uh, components, length of game, style of game. I think all of those... I make that judgment call, I think, when I sit down to the table to play it as to whether, you know, I'm going to switch on, switch off, if this is going to, you know, contain an amount of randomness that I like or dislike. So it's all. I I was thinking about Eclipse in this way because Eclipse is very much an experience game for me. I don't go in thinking I'm going to win. And, you know, that's just like a we're sitting down, we're going to have some space battles. There's some, there's some. strategy there for sure but when it comes right down to it you're rolling dice to attack and you're at the mercy of that a lot of the time um and and i'm okay with losing eclipse is my point is yeah that can be a four hour long game but i can lose it and be okay i can lose it because of a die roll and still be okay because it's about the experience of sitting down to the table with with my friends so Kind of piggybacking off of that, in what ways do we use randomness as kind of like a crutch to be okay with losing or to be okay? Like, so when I play a game of Eclipse, you know, you can, you could just say, you know, whatever, it could come down to a dice roll. I, because I'm interested in like simulation, the best way to simulate something like combat and, and the, the slight randomness that's inherent in that. Now, if I've got a big spaceship, yes, I'll probably blow up your little spaceship and I can scale dice rolls to make sure that that is more likely and that the probability is higher. Um, but then there's that always like, oh, that little spaceship rolled a six and hit my critical drive core and I exploded right away. So it's like it, it in- introduces a little bit of that simulation. But for the player, when I'm in that big ship, I can say, uh, this stupid game, it's, a, you know, it's all randomness, so I don't really care. You know, like, so in what ways do we kind of well, lean on that to be like, oh, whatever, it's the randomness. I think in the example of Eclipse, it's it's built in and it serves the purpose. I think for me, Eclipse um, is all about optimization. You get limited number of turns, limited resources, etc. So you're trying to optimize and give yourself meaningful choices that mitigate that die roll ultimately because you know i'm not going to send one ship into the center tile i'm going to build my army i'm going to build my resources i'm going to choose how to what's up said if you're a badass you will just saying on a suicide (laughs) mission like luke skywalker on my app i've sent i've sent two ships in there before um but that's an app and i don't care in apps (laughs) but um i don't care in solo games really but now for me like randomness it will always be okay if it's if it accompanies a meaningful choice and some sort and like i said with eclipse um 
you know, there is skill in how you optimize and how you, because even, you know, even taking away from the dice roll of Eclipse, let's say the random tile flips. I mean, even that, some sure. players are going to get better planets to start with than other players. But you do know that ones are better than twos are better than threes. So maybe you set yourself up to kind of take over like an inner core of twos or something like that to get what you need to go. So there's some... There's choice in that randomness, and that's, for me, that's ultimately what I'm looking for. Because um, I know there's randomness in everything, you know, unless you're playing chess or Go, um, there's going to be some form of randomness. But if, as long as it's accompanied by a choice and a meaningful choice, I, I love it. Well, see, and I'm I'm tempted to to buck that thing that you just said, because I think that for all of us, there's some games that even though in theory have the choices and mitigation that we like or or when we look at them objectively we think yes i'd be okay with that sometimes when we sit down and play even though we played a game just like it and we're fine with that some games are just like you know what i don't i don't like it in this game for some reason and i i wonder what feel thing what gets us there so is that because sometimes you're like you know what this this game is just so random like when I was with Deus, I was doing the card draws. I'm like, you know what? This dumb game is kind of random. But when I play Seven Wonders, I don't think, man, this game's so random. I'm like, oh, I'm doing my best to well, deal with Seven yeah, Wonders. Because the draft yeah, gives you that mitif- mitig- mitigation. I, yeah, so I just I wonder what gets me in that mindset to be okay with randomness when I'm not okay with it in other games. I think it's a personal feel, like I touched yeah. on before. And Tiff, you can jump in a minute. I, I just, I think. If you've been boned by it, you know, in some way, it just really kind of skews your perception of it. And likewise, you know, in Deus, if you had had a perfect uh, first opening hand and you just played it to perfection, then you're like, oh, there's no randomness in this game. I got exactly what I needed. I was able to, you know, manipulate the cards as I needed. Play well, that's my what you said. Low. At the end of the game, Smee was like, uh, Smee ended up winning. And Dan was like, yeah, man, that card draw boned me and you got all these you got all these nice things and i was like but i and said Smee, i loved it and smee you played well too <laughs> yeah well and sometimes randomness can make you feel like a genius yeah like that's that's a way in which randomness is a good thing you you get that right hand of cards you play it perfectly and you're like i'm the man or woman ladies so you know <laughs> you can have that i sometimes say i'm the woman is that a bad do you thing? is it what is, do you have pants on when you're doing that mm debatable jeez well it depends on how much fun i'm having in the game they might just fall off <laughs> i i do want to circle back to um something about randomness and, and feeling and and it's the big die moment the big die roll or the big card flip and how that impacts a game and how some people are, are designing games for that moment almost and i just find that interesting it's like sometimes people are like I don't want randomness and I don't want these things in the game but sometimes designers are engineering the game for you to have that final role and for you to start feeling something physiologically yeah well die roll creates excitement period it's it's an unknown and then you know it's it, it happens you know and camel up you tip that pyramid over and you're just waiting and maybe someone just keeps that pyramid there for a minute too long it's exciting to see the reveal 
And I think that is that is a good part of randomness. I think that's what makes die rolls in particular make you when I think of a dice game, there's a lot of excitement that comes into that. Whereas a card flip seems more boring. I'm sure there's a scientific reason for that, but it's not as exciting as a die roll. If you go um, Ludology, Jeff Engelstein does a game tech and he's got a he's got a really interesting like seven minute game tech on card flips versus dice rolls and why that's why that's uh there is a difference. People prefer dice rolls. And I think that this is the whole idea that kind of brings me full circle with this idea of randomness is, is why. And I think that I think that for a lot of people, and I think this has been proven, that, that cards feel more controllable than dice. But a card shuffle can be just as random as a die roll. But for some reason, card games well, and things like that, that feel... I'm wondering if that has to do with how we're introduced to cards and dice. Like, generally, when we play dice as a kid, you know, you're, you're rolling a die or two die. And so that can be extremely random. Whereas when you're drawing cards, you're drawing out a deck of 54. I don't know. I just, sorry. I don't know if that makes any sense. But I mean, you could engineer a pool of dice to have the same probability as a deck of cards. Right. Like, you could, you could compare them and... It's just the the card flip for some reason, at least me personally, feels more manageable, feels more in control, and then therefore cards in like Euro games and things like that don't bother me as much as dice. And I bring up Floating Market, which just feels like an, it's got an identity crisis because it's a Euro worker placement game with polyhedral dice. And you're like, what the heck's going on here? And Matt and Ben are fully prepared to buck the trend and just say... This is how we do things. Well, um, but see, that goes back to that human element because part of part of what they were talking about when they were talking to us about the game is that you are trying to talk to your fellow players and get them to influence the pool where you want it. So I don't know. Yeah, and well, they they bill it. They say it's a Euro game with polyhedral dice, and in my mind, the first thing I always think of, even when I just said it, is then that's not a Euro game. But that's part of that preconceived notion yeah. of where dice should be and where randomness should be yeah so in a game think like castles of burgundy like when i first saw that i was like oh man but mr feld the genius that he is you know came up with ways to mitigate those die rolls using those little workers or the plus or minus mm -hmm. things and all kinds of things same with like uh alien frontiers and, and things like that so i think there is a trend with dice in euros that if the correct mitigation is there, it's starting to kind of break the mold a little bit. But there are bonuses and things and mitigation to dice rolls in more tr like Ameritrash games. Like, oh, I get a plus one to this. There's modifiers and things like that. But nobody's ever like, oh, this is great dice mitigation. This is very controllable. They're always just like, that's a random crap fest. And you get a plus one for your bazooka and things like that. Like no one, we don't even think about them similarly when they are similar mechanics. Well, it, dice mitigation it, it in, in a thematic game is not the same as dice mitigation in a brown game. Well, it depends. <laughs> I mean, in a thematic game, it's, you know, upgrades and character, you know, things that you can well, add. They just to. have yeah. theme to them, but it's all just dice mitigation. If, you're, if well, your workers were farm I'm, upgrades in Castles of Burgundy, that's the that same deal. Well, for me, it's not dice mitigation at the It's more. Um, randomness mitigation so you're buying a bazooka to increase your chances of hitting for but that's instance, the same or... as buying a worker in castles of burgundy it's it's randomness mitigation yeah no that's fair are we saying the same thing you are saying the same thing fellas <laughs> i really more agree with with dan matt that 
No, it's fine. Listen. See, perception. It's just <laughs> human perception. I think somewhere in there, there's a discussion. I wonder if there are people listening to us right now, like screaming at their iPod right now. Like Probably. Sorry, guys and gals. If my habits during podcasts are any indication, <laughs> somebody is probably yelling. Why aren't you talking about this, you idiots? Yeah, let us know if we well, miss something. Maybe this will be like an episode that actually spurs a discussion. On I would love to see that. Than... We have resorted to inducing your hatred for us. I don't think anything it's we've said is... the best way to get attention. <laughs> I don't think anything we've said is controversial. <laughs> sure, we may have missed some stuff in the discussion. Yeah, well, that's what I was talking about. Like, what are we missing in this discussion? Because we've gone round and round, and we've hit all these awesome tangents, and... I've learned a lot about you guys today. Thank you. <laughs> this is how we play games together. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. So, are we wrapping this up now? That is a very interesting, for us at least, discussion on randomness that we will splice together for you and make something reasonably listenable. Uh, let's go ahead and close out episode 17 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. So, you know where to find us on Facebook and Google Plus, and LinkedIn, and... Google Plus? The League of NonsenseGoalGamers.com. I have Google, Google Plus. Us. I don't have LinkedIn. I'm just kidding. Uh, but Twitter is always the best way, because Tiff and Dan get notifications to the front of their phones, and I read Dan's Twitter feed all the time, so I'll see it if you hit him up. Tiff, where can we find you? You don't read my Twitter I feed I check all on you just to see what you're playing, but you don't post as much as I thought. No, I don't. I keep it minimal. But I am at IneptGamer on Twitter if you do want to talk to me there. Dan, where can they find you? At League Nonsense. Um, or my personal account is at Scandalous underscore Nad. And you can find me at Cinnamon Buns, spelled phonetically. Uh, last minute addition to the pitch. If you're feeling generous, hearts on board game links and iTunes reviews are much appreciated. We'd love to hear your feedback on how we're doing with the show. And until next time, bye-bye. See you. Bye.